When I was living in Texas, I was invited to a Gideon's banquet. Now, most of you probably have been exposed to the work of the Gideons. They're the folks who leave Bibles in hospitals and hotels and other places, give them to students around the world. One of the things that struck me about this meeting that has stuck with me is the work of, at that time, what was referred to as the wives of the Gideons, because at that point they were just Christian businessmen, and then they had their wives. But the wives had a very powerful and long-going ministry in the local women's prison. Now, in Texas, prison is a big business. There are a lot of people in prison. These women had been going out there and working with prisoners, sharing the word of God, befriending them, because often, at least in the United States, when people go to prison, they're far away from where their family lives, and so sometimes it's hard for them to visit. One thing prisoners have is a lot of time on their hands. And sometimes... God would use putting that Bible into a woman's hands. And for whatever reason we believed by the Holy Spirit, she would begin to read it. Now maybe it brought back memories as a a young child or young girl in her family and she went to church. Or maybe she's like so many American families where there was no Bible in the home. But she starts reading. Then she starts asking the Gideon wives questions. What about this? What about that? What does it mean to be saved? How can I be saved? Because you see, people in prison often, these women would realize that they had in many cases, self-destructed. That they had done things to their lives that got them to where they were, and so they were willing to admit that, yes, I need help, I need a Savior. And through talking with the women over time, women would become converted. (coughs) And if the prisoner after their incarceration was over, would stay in the Wichita Falls area, those women would disciple her, follow up on her, help her make that transition. Now, a lot of them went back to Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, other places far away, where they had some contacts, and they said, well, go to this church, or go see this person, or this woman, because the word of God began to change their lives. And I think that's one of the things that comes out of this passage. That is so important about the scripture. That it is what I call, or will call, a text-soaked sermon. In other words, you're going to hear a lot of passages. I'm going to let the passages that I'm going to read to you be the illustrations. I'm going to let the descriptions of Christ or Christ's words be the illustrations to help you hear what he is saying here. Now, when John includes these things are written, 
after the inclusion of the Thomas story, which no other Gospels have. And I believe what happened there with Thomas really did happen. And Jesus did say to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What he's doing is getting the disciples ready to be able to believe that people will be able to believe in him without seeing him. People will be able to believe in him by hearing about him. Now, it's interesting that in this passage... It starts off in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written down in this book. Now, that's important because there are seven miracles that Jesus did that John records. You know, we have the seven IMs, we have the seven miracles. But it's interesting that what will change people's lives in the future? It's the text. It's what's going to be written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, the life-giving faith always rests on the written witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Again, he ties himself and his Father together with people's faith and eternal life. This is something that as John gets ready to wrap up his gospel, and he says, you know, I could have said so much more. Now, you go to the end of the the book, in verse 25 of chapter 21, Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we know that what we have is a selected, edited memory written down of Christ. Now, we know that all of our memories are edited and and selected that we remember things. And sometimes when you remember things from when you were young, it's because you've heard your parents or your aunts or your grandparents tell you that same story. And so the thing is, do I remember the event or do I remember the stories? Well, what Jesus wants us to understand in this and what John does in writing the words of Jesus is that he wants to make sure that those who come after him don't feel like second-class believers. Because he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, that's why there's power in the message, there's power in the word. Now, what I want to do, and um, Celeste and I talk about these things, 
and I'm using a word that we both wish we could figure out another word, and maybe some of you can come up with it. But what I'm going to do, if you think of an outline, is I'm going to unpack the names of Jesus that are here. I'm going to unpack what does it mean to have life in his name, and then I want to unpack these things are written so that you may believe. The names, life, so that you may believe. Now, Jesus was the name that he was named by the angel. She shall bear a son, it says in Matthew 1. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. That very name Jesus, that he has come to save us from our sins, that he is both human, fully man, the other names are going to reflect being fully God, but being fully man so that he can take our place, so that he can be that substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, that he can pay the price for our sins. He can stand there or hang there on the cross as Jesus. Think about Christ. The apostles would stand up and say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Christ meaning the anointed, the coming one, the one that the people of Hebrew origin and families, those tribal people that had become urban people, they looked for the coming of the Messiah, the anointed. And that was debated and discussed in that generation, and it's still debated and discussed as people go and say to Jewish people, the Messiah has come. The anointed one has come. The one you're waiting for has come. And he is the Christ. You see, one of the things when we say we have faith in Jesus Christ we have to make sure that the Jesus Christ that we are believing and proclaiming is the one that the Bible presents to us, the one that is there so that we might have life in his name. Now, the one part in this passage that I'm going to give you a number of texts just to think about how the Bible reflects on that that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, comma, the Son of God. When the angel came to Mary, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. At Christmas, at the incarnation, at the birth, it's there. And then in John, it's picked up again by John the Baptist as he bears witness, I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. As if to hammer home the point again on the Mount of Transfiguration, which both Matthew and and Luke record, a voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to Him. Do you see how the evidence, how the verses, how the text piles up again and again that He is the Son of God. And his enemies understood that. Because that's why in John 19, when he's been arrested, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. His enemies understood and rejected the claim of him being the Son of God that he was indeed divine. Remember when the tempter came? Out in the desert? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And then you have that wonderful proclamation by the Apostle Peter when Jesus asks him directly, Who do you think I am? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again and again, the Gospels remind us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is Jesus who came to save our sin. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that was to come. And then he is the Son of God. Think about how those claims would sound to somebody that has never heard them before. Those names. How they would be, could be perplexing. We live in a self-sufficient society, so when he, people hear Jesus that he will save their people from their sins, it's like, well, do I really need to be saved? Because most people look at life and say, well, if I, my good deeds outbear my bad deeds, and you know, that is a very ancient way of looking at it. When I was in Cairo one time with the military, we went to the Pharaonic Museum, and there is this very elaborate display about the feather of truth, which is what they put, they take, you know, the Egyptians are very graphic people, they take your heart and put it over here on one side of the scale, and then they put the feather of truth on the other side to see whether you move on. It's a works-based thing. And so Jesus can be a stumbling block to those who are not willing to humble themselves and say, I need a Savior. Now, when we think about unpacking the 
the life in his name that is there in the passage at the end of the verse, verse 31. That is a theme that has been there from almost the beginning of John's gospel, because back in John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and his life was the light of men. When he lifted up his voice in prayer in John 17, that high priestly prayer, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes towards heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see how those two verses kind of as bookends in John's gospel tell us what what true life is. That's knowing God. That's what life is, is knowing God and knowing Jesus whom you or whom he sent. See, it's not defined by possessions, it's not defined by knowledge, it's not defined by fame, by a lot of the things that people measure success or the lack of success by. Life in him is knowing him. And he has made himself known to us through the word of God that the Holy Spirit then takes. And and so that when we think about having life in him, It's not about success. It's not about status. It's not about our savings accounts or our security. It's about knowing him. And see, again, in the world today, in the information culture that we live in, people think that they can know and discover almost anything. That they can... You know, they can Google it, they can search for it, they can find it. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, the last thing to unpack these are written that you may believe. We have already said that we have a text-based faith that points to Jesus. We don't worship the text. We worship the one that the text points to, the one that the text teaches us about. We know that what we have in the text has come from God through the Holy Spirit. Now, he reminds us, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs. It's interesting that we're going to hear about writing about the signs, but not duplicating the signs. See, we can't say what what Thomas said. And I wonder sometimes, I mean, I really believe it happened, but I don't understand why someone would want to put their hand in someone else's wound unless you were a doctor. But he wanted to touch the real Christ. And through faith, we can know the real Christ. 
the one that was wounded and died for us, that our faith is as blessed and as honored as Thomas's was because he had touched the body of Christ. We can't demand signs if we don't accept the word. Now, I want to take a little time out from the sermon to jump ahead. When I was coming over here, I was looking at what I think of as, you know, maybe 150 sermons. What am I going to preach on? I don't know everything that I'm going to do, but I have become convicted that I'm going to come back to John. Now, next week we're going to come back to John, and John 4 is the beginning of a three-part service series on worship. In John 4, when he talks about worship, um, to worship in spirit and truth, we'll look at that. And I haven't decided whether these two series in John, whether I'm, I'm going to be preaching on the seven signs, we'll look at the miracles. But then I also want to take some time for the larger text of the upper room. Because that in John 7, uh, 13 through 17 is the longest speech that we have of Jesus. Giving that to his disciples. And saying that if you love each other, you prove yourself to the world that you are my disciples. So we'll be doing that. In John 16, in the upper room, he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father is mine. Therefore, I have said he will take what is mine and declare to you. You know, sometimes it's hard to hear those words that you can't bear something right now. I have many things to say to you. I know that often in our lives, God is gracious to us and does not expose all of our sins at once. But he builds up and he shows us and we change over the years, over the decades. But see, he wrote, and he's, John is saying this, he wrote his gospel, that by believing you may have life in his name. That the word of God is for worship, and the word of God is for evangelism and then discipleship. Jesus wants us to go out and talk about him based upon the text to go out and proclaim about him based upon the text so that people will believe. Now, one of the things that has happened is I've gotten to know people because I, I try to go to public events where I'm going to meet strangers. And, and I, you know, Celeste says I will talk to anybody, and that's true. But there is, for some people, 
in our community, when they find out I'm a pastor, they say, well, I don't go to church. It's like they want to close the door. But I don't walk away. I keep talking. I keep wanting to know who they are. But I will be honest if somebody says, and no one has said this here, you know, are you trying to convert me? Here's what I say. I cannot convert you. God can use my words and the word of God and his Holy Spirit to convert you. But my words by themselves, apart from the word of God and the Holy Spirit, cannot convert you. Do I want you to become converted? Yes. Because I believe that is the greatest blessing someone can have. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is the blessed life, is to believe, to know. And that's what I want for everybody I meet. Now, I'm not going to go bang them on the head with the Bible or whatever. But if they ask me, what are you doing? I mean, where, where was I? Oh, because it was an honest answer. Well, I've got to go home and finish my sermon. Well, what's your sermon on? Guess what? <laughs> That's an invitation to walk through that door. And some people, you know, I've learned how to, you know, take what you have heard and shrink it down to one sentence or two sentences or an illustration. Because I want to see if they will, the Holy Spirit will use that to continue the relationship. Because I know that there are people, because it, it's happened to me, who have been exposed to the gospel all their life by other people, by family members. And I happen to be the person at that point, in that time, that God puts in their life to lead them to Christ. All the work that everybody else did, that God do, did through so many other people, family, preachers, friends, came up to that point. And I know sometimes I'm part of that preparation. Because everybody comes to the Lord in their own way. Now, I've heard several people describe coming to the Lord in evangelistic meetings, there are people who have come to the Lord through personal relationships with other Christians. There are people like myself who grew up in a Christian family and heard the word of God. And that is what at some point as they grow, their faith matured, solidified, crystallized. But yet as a church... I hope that we can use the word of God in scripture, but we will also be a church that in our conversations with people, that we will, as the Lord leads us, be able to share what God has written down so that people will know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you that your word is powerful. Whether it's a woman who is alone in her prison cell, whether it's a soldier on a battlefield, whether it's a family member that is surrounded by what seems to them to be chaos and disinterest, you find us. Your word finds us, that we might believe and know you and have eternal life. We do pray, Father, that your spirit would fall upon our congregation, fall upon our community and the other churches, that we would see you move in a very powerful way through the word of God. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.